A small vending machine hustle opened Connor Perra's eyes to the power of entrepreneurship. It was just a taste, just a few hundred extra bucks a month, but it sort of broke my brain, says Connor. It made me realize that I don't need permission to go out and create and capture value. There's no gatekeeper determining whether or not you can go out and make a living. You can just go make things happen. And make things happen, he then did. Connor closed on a commercial printing business just a few months ago. Also listen for how he approached the process of buying a business. One thing we don't talk much about on the pod is how daunting this is, just learning the mechanics of doing a deal. There is so much to learn, but one foot in front of the other, always continuing to take action, however small, can get you there. And faster than you expect, as in Connor's case. Here he is, Connor Perra, owner of The Print Authority. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. Connor Para. Welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me, Will. Um, I got to say, it's uh, cool to be on the podcast that I've spent the better part of the last two or three years uh, listening to uh, on my commutes and runs and other uh, activities. So it's it's cool to be on. Awesome, man. Awesome. Thank you for saying that. Well, um, you've earned it. You recently closed on the Print Authority which is a printing business in the Nashville area. And I saw the story that you had written about the, the article that you'd written covering your story of this acquisition. You posted it on Twitter and on SearchFunder. We'll link to that in the notes. And so I wanted to have you come on and, and share that story with the listeners. You really, you really have kind of thought it through and, and, and laid it out and you have some of the mistakes that you made in there, which, which are, of course, we always learn most from our mistakes. So really excited to dive in. Start us off, as always, Connor, with some background on you, please. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I uh, came into the whole um, search fund ETA ecosystem through a very, I would say, cliche and traditional mean, means of... Um, discovering the ETA model in, in business school. I went to, uh, to Kellogg for B school, um, which has a pretty, uh, 
pretty sizable and well-known sort of program for ETA. And there's actually a class on ETA at, at Kellogg. And um, so I took that class, was super interested and fascinated by the model um, and the whole idea. Um, but coming out of business school, I, for a variety of reasons, um, just think for the most part, I wasn't quite ready to take the plunge, um, but was definitely enthused by the idea of owning and operating a small business. I also started um, a vending machine business um, on the side. Um, and that was the, I think, one of the bigger catalysts to deciding that that entrepreneurship was um, for me. Um, it's sort of like broke my brain um, in a weird way and made <laughs> me realize that like, I don't need permission to go out and create and capture value. And like, n there's no gatekeeper determining like whether or not you can go out and make a living, like you can just go make things happen. Um, and the vending business is, is, is very, very, very small. So I, I'm not uh, making, a, making a living on that, but just the idea that, that the path was, was out there um, was sort of the, the sort of nudge that I, that I needed. What did this vending machine um, business look like? Just give us some bullet, quick bullet points. Yeah, so it's uh, right now uh, two machines at one location at an apartment complex in Nashville and in the process of, of securing a uh, second location where I'll be installing another machine. Um, but the first location has turned out to be, uh, be pretty, pretty good. Um, I've had months where I've done 1200 and in, in gross sales and my margins are 55, 60%. So definitely not, um, supporting the family on, uh, that kind of money. But as long as I continue to have capacity and bandwidth to scale and reinvest cash flow into expansion. Um, I think there's an opportunity for it to be a nice little, uh, you know, stable source of moderate cash flow, um, as well as just something that I can, you know, test and learn uh, various things on the business that I'm currently operating that I spend, you know, 99% of my focus and energy on, um, as well as um, just my, I guess, entrepreneurial curiosity about if I do this, then what happens type of thing. So it's a way for me to, <laughs> I guess, satisfy that, um, that urge, um, as well. Did um, you consider buying a, buying a vending business when you got serious about search? Cause vending no. routes are one you, you commonly see on biz by sell. Yeah. I mean, I definitely would have been, would have been open to it. Um, and I have talked to other searchers who are interested in vending um, with the caveat that, you know, I'm a really, really tiny operator, but I can tell you a little bit about this industry. But I will say, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into my, um, the business that I'm, that I'm currently operating. Um, I will say vending, like printing, is an industry where uh, the competition is high. Um, and it's sort of that like red ocean versus blue ocean dynamic. Um, and actually operating in the world of vending, um, made me realize that I'm comfortable with a little bit more of a red ocean type of dynamic, because I know that the demand is so 
evergreen, mm-hmm. um, even though there's a lot of competition and it's not easy, um, there will always be product market fit. So, um, so anyway, so it, it definitely gave me a lens through which to look at deals and look at opportunities I would have been open to a vending business. I just didn't come across something that was um, compelling when I was searching that I would have been interested in in putting all my time and energy into but definitely something i'm was and still am open to the idea of um i'm obviously i know enough to be dangerous about how to operate in the industry um but um but yeah um i didn't uh, really focus on it okay so you but it did uh, make your brain explode and you so carry on with your kind of motivations around what yeah. What finally said, let's get serious about search. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was a big thing. Um, and then I think just, you know, the, the, um, the sort of trajectory I, I, I felt I was on in my corporate, uh, career. Um, I think I, uh, you know, was in a world where I'm around, um, a lot of other, uh, post MBAs who are ambitious, driven, intelligent, um, in many cases, much better at brand marketing than, than I was. So I kind of, you know, felt like I see this path that I'm on and the, the sort of process of, of getting ahead is, is a long and windy road that is, that requires a lot of subtle, you know, political maneuvering. Um, So I kind of started to feel like there was this push pull dynamic of, do I want to be playing this game long term. And then uh, perhaps like the biggest one um, was uh, my wife and I found out that we were expecting um, last year. So we had a we had a baby girl um, in October of 2022. Um, nice. And when that happened, then I really started to um, feel the um, not necessarily pressure, but feel the pull to you know, if I'm going to go do something entrepreneurial and risky, um, then I better start making moves now because, again, there's sort of like this twofold dynamic with the trajectory I was on. A, like as our daughter gets older, um, you know, we may have more children in the mix. She'll have more expenses and I'll have more responsibilities. So just the from a time and energy and financial point of view, it's like gonna make less and less sense to go do the the ETA thing. And then the other piece of it is the long, I felt like the longer I stay in corporate America, uh, the harder it's gonna be um, to leave because I'll be, you know, I'll continue to, you know, hopefully I, I thought, you know, I would continue to get, you know, promoted and, uh, and move up uh, and, and, you know, be making a nice, nicer salary and you know you get you get i think used to that uh lifestyle um which is a you know it's an it's a great lifestyle so um i i felt like if i don't start making moves now um it's only going to get harder and harder so i should i should start making moves so i you know i did what i think a lot of people do and uh when they're thinking about this more seriously is i just kind of started tapping my network and talking to people who i knew who had searched who had bought businesses who had you know, been involved in the, in the ecosystem. Um, and I actually met a guy, um, here in middle Tennessee, who's also a Kellogg alum, 
um, who's nice enough to, to sit down with me, owns a, a truck bed manufacturing business. Um, and, uh, I kind of told him a little bit about my story and kind of what I was looking to do, which was, uh, search kind of part time. I'm like asking for permission. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, this guy's a, uh, former, former Marine, uh, and just very matter of fact, kind of no nonsense. And he had done a geographic search while working a corporate job and had, you know, young children at, at home. Um, and he, uh, he was like, like, what are you waiting for, man? Like, go, go make it happen. And so I just kind of started making, setting goals each week to accomplish, you know, one to two things and, and trying to knock those out when I had, had time and availability. And so, you know, things just kind of snowballed and, um, here we are. You know, it's, it's, um, the, the learning you're pregnant thing is always tricky because on the one hand, it's like, it makes you realize that life is only going to get busier and more complex for the next 18 years. But on the other, it's like, wow, this enormous thing is going to happen that sucks up all of my available energy and time. And so is now the right time to, you know, buy a second baby in the form of a business, <laughs> two babies yeah. at once. Um, but it's kind of like it's at the same time, it's kind of like you're in a corner because because it's only going to get trickier, um, probably, especially if you're planning on having more kids or whatever, um, I guess. I guess the logic could be if you're just going to have one child and you wait five years until your first kid goes to kindergarten and they just don't need you as much, you can, you know, pause your life for professional life for that long and then you'll have some more time on your hands. But that's a long time and most people probably don't want to do that. So anyway, um, all right, Connor, so, so you, but... So you make the decision to do part a part-time search. Let's talk about that a little bit because the some of the kind of conventional wisdom, some of which people have heard on this podcast um, argued for strenuously, is that you must do a full-time search um, because it's so hard. Finding a business, a good business is hard. Then closing a deal is hard. And there's going to be three dead deals. And all of the stuff that you hear, which is all true, um, means that you know you increase your chances hugely by treating this, giving it as much energy as you can and treating it like a job. Um, how did you, and you, you'd, I think, been listening to this or other stuff. So you'd kind of, you would come across that wisdom. Um, how did you reconcile that in your own mind? Yeah. I mean, I think it, uh, it all sort of boils down to knowing oneself, um, and kind of what, and I would argue this was one of, if not the only advantage I had in my search was that I'm, I try to be as, as self-reflective and self-aware as, as possible and kind of knowing what I'm good at and what I'm, what I'm not. And I just knew that kind of the way that I'm wired and the way that I've been able to accomplish other things in life has been very much of like, an incremental approach and like just do a little bit every day or just do a little bit every week and um don't necessarily like stress about having to have it all figured out all at once i think that's great advice i mean that's it it's not advice that i necessarily take to to my detriment <laughs> but it's advice that i've kind of read whenever there's some kind of mammoth 
um, goal that you you want to accomplish in front of you, it can be overwhelming. And so the best approach is just one foot in front of the other. What can you accomplish this week, however small it might feel? Um, you know, everything, all those small actions add up uh, into accomplishing the goal. And yeah, I mean, it seems to work. <laughs> it worked for you. Not yeah, only no, worked I'll, for you, worked, again, for you and worked for you in a very counterintuitive way because you yeah. ended up buying very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as it and turned I'll, out. I'll caveat again with like, I think the nature of the search that you're conducting and what you're trying to accomplish very much like dictates the approach sure. you should take. Sure. Um, so if you're, you know, raising a traditional fund and you have investors, I'm not recommending going out and getting a nine to five on top of that. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I just think it's like a matter of knowing yourself and kind of being really clear about what you're trying to achieve and therefore backing into kind of the the method through which you're um, you're trying to achieve it and and being eyes wide open about the trade-offs that you may be making. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund, the second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. How does your, your part-time search, what shape does it take as you kind of officially start? Yeah, so it takes the shape of early mornings, um, and weekends mostly. I'm, I'm uh, again, like kind of know about myself that um, past 7 p.m., uh, my brain doesn't really work too well for any activities that are intellectual. Um, so I, I kind of, again, like leaned into um, what, what I felt like my, my sort of style was. Um, so very much that. Um, and, uh, and then just kind of like networking, uh, was, was sort of number one, um, and just communicating to people that this is what I want to accomplish. This is what I'm looking for. Who should I talk to? Do you have any recommendations for me? Um, and, uh, and then just kind of taking recommendations and applying them and then going back and then just iterating um, from there. Um, so it was definitely, and I guess for a more like practical um, application of, of how that went for me was I, from a deal flow standpoint, looked into both brokered and proprietary, tried to get like a proprietary engine up and running um, through um, hiring someone on Upwork to scrub various data sources and, and kind of find uh, the, the, the owners, the people I was looking for. Um, and then also while concurrently pursuing brokered, but I, I found brokered to be just much more um, effective channel for me, I think because I was um, severely time, time constrained. Um, 
and I just found that proprietary just took a long time to pull together those lists, to then filter through the list, to then find and identify the person to contact, and likely like you're going to reach out and not make contact, um, which I didn't even actually get to in, in, uh, in the proprietary stage. So I just kind of was like, okay, proprietary is taking too long. Um, I'm going to focus on brokered, um, pretty much exclusively. You turn your attention to brokered and are just communicating with brokers at this point. How do you eventually find, how do you ultimately find the print authority? Yeah, so I think just serendipitously, a broker that I was having agreed to sit down with me to press me on my ability to close a deal uh, and uh, what I was looking for. But for whatever reason, he seemed at least open enough to like take a meeting with me and, and sit down. And um, so I had... Um, I had met with him um, and uh, yeah, just kind of gave him the pitch on what I was hoping to accomplish, like what, you know, what I was looking for. He spent most of the time like grilling me on, you know, who the heck are you? I mean, anyone who's a searcher will know kind of like the pushback that you get from, from brokers and um, as someone who's never ran or bought a small business before and, and it's understandable. Um, but I think for whatever reason, I, I was able to, to, to convince him that, you know, I was serious about, about doing what needed to be done to, to, uh, to make it happen. And he's like, you know, I do actually have something that may be of interest to you. Um, and uh, I'd like you to consider it. I can send you some, some information. Um, and, uh, and it turned out to be the the deal that um, that I ultimately closed. Give us the bullet points of the print authority, Connor. Yeah, so it is a uh, 32-plus-year-old uh, commercial printing business here in uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, which is right outside Nashville. Um, and uh, I think that in and of itself was... Um, very impressive to me in general, like the durability of a 32-year-old yep. business that has been profitable for three decades um, through multiple recessions and COVID. Um, to me, that's In the advent like, of the internet? <laughs> yes. And that's like a super reliable, uh, Lindy-ish uh, business um, uh, for those... Th familiar with the, the Lindy effect. For those who are not, tell us what the Lindy effect is, Connor. Yeah, so I, I'm definitely not a mathematician or, or qualified to speak uh, speak um, in detail about the Lindy effect, but essentially what it is is that uh, for non-perishable things, the longer it has been around, the longer it is likely to continue to be around. So it applies to pieces of technology ideas um and i would argue businesses um and industries and so i felt good about the lindy uh nature of the industry and the business um and so and and it was a business that had done a lot in the advent of the internet as you mentioned to sort of adjust and pivot its model to uh tailor um to um to to that you know, 
changing dynamic. And so a lot of what we do today, it's sort of what we what we specialize in is is what's called web to print. Um, so we work with a lot of small to medium sized uh, national multi-location um, businesses and, and franchises. Um, and our relationship is with the franchisor or the corporate office. Um, and we are um, sort of the, the recommended provider for, um, for their uh, franchisees, in many cases, day to day printing needs to continue to, to operate their business. So what I really, really like about that model is that you're hooking into a multi-location national business um, where you become a recommended vendor for franchisees. And so we do a lot of, you know, quite a bit of shipping as well. So I, I felt really and continue to feel really bullish on that model in in the industry um, as a whole, because um, it's a compelling proposition to the franchise in that we provide consistency, reliability, branding, and cost savings. Um, and then for us, it's good because we kind of hook in to the, the franchise entity um, and we get this sort of compounding effect of both multi-location as well as if it's a high growth franchise, there is a lot of team members who have been in the industry and with the business, again, for decade plus, uh, decades in some cases, um, who have forgotten more than I'll ever know about print and web to print. Um, and so I, I felt, you know, as the new potential new owner of such a business, I would benefit greatly from having that expertise around me provided i could keep it and um i also uh thought that that spoke volumes about the culture and the business that had been built that there are a lot of people who have been with the business for a long time so um those were really like the high level like bullet points that got me excited i think the other big thing was the value I felt like I could add. So I mentioned um, the business has, has done a really good job over the years of, you know, uh, reinventing itself for the digital age. So our website is pretty, um, pretty well optimized for search. There's an SEO strategy, which is, I think, you know, rare in the world of commercial printing. Um, and uh, however, and there's, there's customers that we've had for, again, decades in, in some cases, um, however, there, I felt like there was opportunity in both the digital marketing side of the business, as well as just in terms of old school outbound selling and getting a sales process and engine up and running, um, which has been kind of like two of my biggest focus areas since, since operating. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I felt like, man, like sales and marketing, like, the business would benefit from that. Like I can provide that. Um, I think, mm -hmm. I mean, certainly <laughs> better than I can provide, um, any sort of like technical, uh, solution, for example, give us some sense of size of the business, whatever you can share employee number, and then any, 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 um, financial metrics around it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we're on track to do about 2 million in, in revenue, um, with, um, pretty good, pretty good EBITDA margins in the, in the 10 to 15 
percent range um mm -hmm. and uh we have uh 12 full-time employees and three uh part-time um employees on the team mm -hmm. awesome i want to dwell a little bit on well let's before we just leave printing in, in your decision that you were fine with printing even though it's kind of the classic example of an industry that has been disrupted by technology um, so, so one reason to that that uh, critique can be um, neutralized is because of the Lindy effect. Maybe in a hundred years, people aren't printing anything anymore. Um, but it's it's if it's declining, it's de declining very slowly. And probably any of the big decline that it was going to see because of technology is already in the past. So at this point, probably the rate of decline, if it is still declining, is probably much slower. So that. Um, but, um, what, what else about the printing industry? M maybe tell us what you print, like, give us an example of one of your customer franchise or customers. What are you, what are these franchisees printing? Where, where is the business these days? Yeah. So we, uh, again, I thought a really shrewd sort of approach, um, we work with, um, you know, we work with a handful of small to medium sized restaurants actually. Um, and we work with some home services businesses. Those are some of our biggest, biggest clients, um, uh, just off the top of my head. But, um, you know, we do everything from marketing materials and business cards and brochures mm -hmm. for them to a lot of what we do, particularly for our restaurant customers is a lot of, um, back of the house printed materials, um, which again, I thought really sort of wise and shrewd approach to not focus entirely on the marketing and branding print because, and as a former brand marketer, I can attest to this, that, that oftentimes um, those, those sort of jobs require a lot of very specific print detail and marketers are very particular about color and shape and ratio and logo. And uh, again, as, as a marketer, I can attest to, you know, how much, uh, we push our vendors on branding and ensuring uniformity and compliance with the, the sort of specifications that we're trying to, trying to hit. So when you're focusing on printed materials that, tend to not have branding so front and center um, and mm -hmm. be so consumer facing. Um, you're oftentimes talking about jobs that are, um, you know, relatively simpler, both operationally mm -hmm. and, and from a customer standpoint to execute on and, and deliver um, really well. So, mm -hmm. um, so we do a lot of that uh, sort of back of the house stuff that, you know, the average consumer doesn't necessarily um, see when they go into a restaurant um, or some of it they, they would, um, but but that a lot of the staff use in, in sort of the back of the house and the kitchen and stuff. And then, like I said, for, for a lot of other uh, clients, we do we do a little bit of everything. And, you know, we've even, you know, gotten into promotional products and apparel and wide format over the years as well. But, um, but I would say um, the wheelhouse tends to be booklets, brochures, books, um, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff, sort of traditional print. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And then you mentioned again, this, this, this channel effectively of, of franchisors, which have franchisees, presumably all over the country. What, to what extent is, is this a local business serving the greater Nashville 
metropolitan market? Yeah, you know, I think about this often because one of my sort of thesis going into my search was that, and I talked about it in, in terms of how I started thinking about entrepreneurship is that I'm super bullish on the region. And I think that um, just sort of like a belief that I have come to develop as someone who's looked at small businesses, I think that there's like the, the valuation of those businesses, the multiple is consistent, no matter whether it's in a growth market versus a non-growth market. And to me, like there's a, there's a sort of valuation, there's a, there's a fundamental mispricing of an asset that is situated in a growth market versus an asset that is situated in a non-growth market. Um, and so part of my belief was that businesses in this region are going to outperform like businesses in non-growth regions simply by dint of economic expansion of the region. Um, and so we do uh, not necessarily, not not as much as other printers um, in the region uh, have sort of that regional play, if you will. Um, so I, I'm constantly kind of thinking about that, um, but we definitely over-index and, and we do a lot of local work um, and we definitely over-index in Nashville and even among multi-location businesses, they're over-indexed in the Southeast. And so in general, like it's, you know, from a shipping standpoint, it's you know, more cost effective for us to be shipping in, in one day range versus, you know, two and three business day range. So the West Coast and particularly like the Pacific Northwest becomes um, more complicated. Uh, we, we do have business out there. But um, but again, uh, yeah, so we not as much as other commercial printers or regional businesses are we um, sort of is our customer base here in the region specifically, but we still strongly over-index um, in the Nashville market. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I'm kind of, you know, the investment thesis that I had going into my search, particularly as it relates to regional small businesses, I think it still largely holds true, but I've, I've kind of, you know, I've bought a business where mm, it's not necessarily like the uh, growth strategy, uh, not central mm -hmm. to the growth strategy anyway. Mm -hmm. Connor, one of the things I found very interesting in our pre-call was about how you recognized that this business, um, the operations of this business was going to be heavily about managing people and how that could be perceived as a, as a weakness um, because it, as everyone knows, people are, are messy and so on. <laughs> um, but that that was actually I, I won't I don't want to speak for you so but that, that that was actually a draw can you do you recall that Ar articulate that please. yeah yeah um, and I've heard sort of people talk about it to varying degrees on on your podcast and in other spaces and forums related to search that um, you know there's I think kind of again depending on what your tendency and what your preference is and what your goals are um, some searchers have a tendency to go after businesses that are people light. Um, and some searchers like want to, want to lead teams and want to be, you know, in the throes of managing people. Um, and I am definitely in that latter, um, camp. Um, and I think I actually think that there's not, 
and I, I'm just starting to scratch the surface on some of this stuff, but um, I think there's like not enough discussion among the SMB acquisition community about what a cool and awesome opportunity it is to be able to impact people who um, oftentimes, you know, in sort of the circles that searchers run in versus the circles that, you know, people who work in small business run in, like there's, you know, oftentimes not much overlap in other areas of life. And these are oftentimes businesses where you, you have like this phenomenal opportunity to impact people um, in a really positive way um, that, you know, you may not have had the opportunity to, to impact otherwise. And, and I actually <clears throat> was sort of drawn to this, the small business world in many ways during business school, even I sort of heard <clears throat> this point articulated around, um, I think it was a searcher who had acquired a business, but just talking about how in the world of sort of post MBA careers and the people that you manage in those organizations and in those functions, like for the most part, and I would argue for a hundred percent of the time, like those people are going to be just fine. Like you, you don't need to manage those people. In fact, by managing them, you're actually probably impeding their growth. Um, so I kind of was like, I was always thinking about that too, like in my sort of corporate role as well. Like, you know, the people you're managing, it's kind of like the other side of the coin of, like I said, you know, the, the sort of competition for lack of a better term, the, the colleagues that you're with, like those people that, you know, you manage and, you know, um, in those post MBA uh, roles, they don't, they don't need to be managed like they they're super ambitious they're gonna find opportunities they're gonna have a lot of success and it it's all kind of like no thanks to you i mean you may you know you always have an opportunity to make make people's lives better but i guess i just think like the opportunity in small business is so it's so cool and it's like one of the most energizing things about now when I get up in the morning and go to work, um, kind of the way that I think about it is like, yeah, people, people's stuff is hard. People's stuff is messy, but also like, I think fundamentally, like I'd be lying if I said the, you know, potential economic outcomes weren't, you know, a draw, um, as with all, uh, searchers. But at the end of the day, like, I don't know, to me, like, business without people is like not fun and not interesting. Um, and so like the opportunity to make an impact on people, um, is, is like what it's all about for me, I think mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Um, and, uh, I just think that's like a really, really awesome opportunity that we get as searchers that again, I don't, I don't think is like discussed enough, um, because it's a really cool, appeal. Um, and I think we should sell it more. Um, but I don't know. Well, well, thank you for that, Connor. And, and you probably know from listening that you're not, 
you're not alone in that. Although it seems like what I I guess does differentiate you is that you perceived that opportunity going into this. Um, What I what I have heard from a number of guests is they didn't, but once they got in to the seat as owner, uh, they they then learned how gratifying um, having an impact on their employees has been, and that's been. That's been among the most gratifying, if not the most gratifying part of the journey. And, and it kind of caught, it caught them unawares. Um, they didn't, really didn't expect that. Um, and I also want to, that, that, was, that was awesome, Connor. It's, it's adjacent, but not exactly to the, where, uh, what I was also driving at, which is, for lack of a better word, you could call the fact that this, was, that, you know, this business was going to be people and management intense as a quote weakness of the business mm. at least from a certain perspective um you know i guess i guess in in theory and in, 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 in sort of from an academic perspective the perfect business has no people and just spits off money it's mm-hmm. just a magic box that just prints money right <laughs> so the more moving pieces and people the, yep. the worse so quote unquote weakness um but you were drawn to that aspect of it and so when thinking about a business, when when you're a searcher thinking about what kind of business to buy and looking for business buyer to fit, think about not just what you're drawn to and the strengths of a weakness, but what problems you want to yeah. solve, what problems you you wouldn't hate that that you actually might even enjoy or enjoy more than the next guy or gal yeah. solving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I yeah, um, I actually, and kind of when I was going through the process of you know, uh, looking at businesses and, uh, I was talking to my, um, my dad about it a bit and he's, uh, he spent his career in, in corporate America and he's, he's got really like, well, obviously he's my dad, but uh, I, I think he's got great, uh, business instincts. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I bounce a lot of ideas off of him and, um, and, uh, he, I, I forget exactly what I was driving at or talking about, but just talking about, you know, this kind of the issues of this, this business that I'm looking at, or yeah, it's got this issue or whatever. And, and he was like, well, every business has issues. You just got to decide what issues you're comfortable dealing with. Um, and you're excited and invigorated about versus the issues that you're like, I don't want to spend any time on that. So for me, yeah, it's like, the issue of man they've got a lot of manufacturing machinery that needs to be updated and retooled and that's like a huge value creation lever and you know potentially an acquisition target for a searcher like that's not a value creation lever that i'm like excited about tackling um yeah so yeah yeah, for me like the people heavy is like yeah it's a you know it's a double-edged sword um but actually like you know the the issues of you know people being an issue um if you can you know kind of call it that um yeah i'm ex- i'm invigorated by the challenge of of um dealing with those you know people challenges yeah. um so so yeah again i think it kind of goes to buyer business fit and knowing that there's no such thing as a perfect business every business has issues like what issues are you able to tolerate and what issues are you like i really don't want to spend the next 10 15 years of my life like plugging away at this issue because it's a big commitment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I wonder if a way to to be systematic about this, or or just a little a little framework, is when when evaluating a business, what a buyer might do is you know list out the 
cons or weaknesses of that business. And if you're comparing a number of opportunities, just compare the cons of, of these different opportunities and, and stack rank them and which, which of those businesses has the cons that are most appealing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and rather than, because it'll jump out at you probably that certain businesses have cons that are just intolerable to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's your answer. Uh, mm -hmm. and so anyway, uh, very interesting. Connor, let's return to the deal. A couple questions quickly on the deal. So one thing that I learned in our pre-call is that you did not do an SBA loan. You did a conventional loan. What should the audience understand about that opportunity versus, cause we all just default to thinking, oh, SBA. Yeah. And I definitely defaulted to that mindset as well. Um, and uh, I've had people reaching out of like, uh, oh, hey, how'd you avoid a personal guarantee? And the answer is I, I didn't. Um, it's just not a loan through the SBA program. It's conventional bank debt from a, from a regional bank that does acquisition financing, um, but um, which, you know, not every regional bank does, but but some do. Um, but it is, it is personally guaranteed. Um, so I don't want to give people the impression that, uh, I, I got away from that one, but, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, I would say that, you know, quite simply it, it boils down to, again, sort of this theme of like leaning on the advice of people who know more about getting deals done than I do. Um, and I had a good friend and a couple other people who I know, know a lot about, small business M&A and kind of the world of searching and acquiring. And they sort of steered me away from SBA if, you know, if it's not needed. Um, and they said, if you can get, if you can close a deal without using the SBA program, then that would be my recommendation. So I pursued that route um, and was successful. So I just never really went the SBA route. I and guess. why did they so, say it's pr if, if you can if you can get it go non SBA? What 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 were the benefits of doing a conventional versus SBA? I think yeah. So there's there's trade offs, right? Um, so I have a shorter AM than than ten years. Um, but um, so so ab on an absolute basis, debt service is is higher, um, but uh, lower rate and more flexibility. I would say are the biggest um, the biggest. Um, benefits um that that i found um and i think like particularly now in a rising rate environment like i don't know for sure but i think there's like sba loans that are you know certainly well within the double digit interest rates and you, you yeah. may be looking at like 11 percent um, which you know I, I think starts to get like pretty untenable depending on the target and the multiple um uh that you're that you're paying so um you know, there's that. And then there's, there's also, um, just the flexibility and the ability to refinance. I, I know that you can do it through the SBA, I, I believe anyway. Um, so I don't want to steal any thunder from SBA experts who are probably, you know, can correct what I'm, uh, that I'm inaccurately characterizing the program. But I do know that depending on the lender you use, there can be like prepayment penalties, um, and stuff like that. So, and, and I think at the end of the day too, it's like, it's a government, backed program, which is great because, you know, it, it helps support first time acquirers who maybe won't be able to get a loan, um, from a bank, um, to finance a deal. Um, and then I will say to you, like it, it required more, um, it, the, the LTV was, was lower than an SBA loan, which I've heard it 
you know, 90, though, I think that too, like not necessarily in all cases, will the SBA lend at 90% of the transaction value. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think just depending on the lender, like you can have a lot of issues with flexibility in terms of if you do want to refi or if you do want to, you know, um, I don't know, recap the business or like whatever. I, I guess I just feel like the advice was given to me because it's more flexible and it's from an purely from a rate perspective, cheaper, cheaper debt. So what, and, and so then what's the catch? That sounds great. The catch is that you have to bring more equity to the table and that the amortization schedule is going to be shorter. So the monthly debt payments are going to be significantly higher. What, what is your amortization? Five years, seven years? Yeah. Five, five years. So yeah, five so years tighter. Yeah. Then, then you would see. Yeah. So, so is the math on that, that it's effectively twice what roughly, but effectively your monthly debt payment? twice what it would be if it were a 10-year amortization schedule? Is that how debt math works? Well, I mean, not really, because the, if it's compounding monthly at a higher rate, um, then it's not quite double. But yeah, I mean, you're in the ballpark, right, of five mm -hmm. versus 10-year. But but a note that, amort that, that, com that compounds interest every month for 10 years is going to compound more interest. So you'll be paying right. more interest. So if on a higher cost of capital basis, so, but yeah, I mean, it's probably, I, I don't know. Um, uh, and I'm not, you know, a finance expert at all. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it probably, um, is, you know, not quite double, but, but in that neighborhood, 1.75. Just for, just for kind of back of the envelope and the, so what, can you share what your equity injection was, at least in terms of percentage, how much yeah, did you have to bring so to the table? Yeah, so it ended up having to be 30%, which was, um, or 30% was financed outside of the, um, the loan. So, um, okay. so yeah, so it's a combination of, um, of, uh, structure, um, through um, equity injection and and other um, elements of the deal, yeah. So so that's that's the other thing though is that while you are have a sh much shorter amortization schedule, so you're paying the loan back over five instead of ten years, it's a smaller it's smaller principal because it's you're bringing more equity. So it's seventy percent of of the enterprise value versus ninety. Mm -hmm. in an SBA loan uh, sometimes. Um, and your interest rate is less than SBA. So um, so I guess so I guess really the quote catch would be or the downside would be just it, it, whether or not you can access 30% equity, one w whether or not a buyer can actually get that equity and bring that to the table either from their own balance sheet or from investors. Um, and and did you find this I, I recall, I recall, remind me how you found the bank. I mean, if somebody wants to explore this, do they just do they just start calling their local local regional banks just or look for banks? Just pick up the phone, man. Just pick <laughs> yeah. up the phone. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I did. Um, I uh, well, I had again had some recommendations of some banks to look into that were hyper regional, and uh, yeah, just kind of um, gave them a call and said, "Hey, here's who I am. Here's what I've got." You got, well, first I was like, do you guys do acquisition financing? And um, if they did, then I would say, hey, here's a little bit about, you know, who I am and, and what I've got, what I'm what I'm working on. Would you be willing to, to take a look? But yeah, just uh, just just reached out. Connor, I want to 
um, so you've done this deal and you have now been operating for, sorry, when, when did you close? Uh, so we closed in um, the uh, like beginning of May-ish timing. Okay, so two months. I just want to dwell a little bit on the fact that you do have an MBA from you know a great program, Kellogg. Uh, and, and in fact, you took the ETA class because I'll, I'll occasionally get emails from people who like don't have that pedigree and are are somewhat discouraged by hearing my the quantity of guests on acquiring minds that did come from a, a fancy business school. How much of your um, MBA experience and specifically that ETA class, how much did it help this process so far? Well, I would other say- Other than wet your appetite, other than open your eyes to the possibility. <laughs> the, actual, the actual knowledge gained. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in terms of like putting a deal together, like it was pretty invaluable. And I, I would say that both the class, but also the like, network and the amount of people I sort of have at arm's length who can, you know, I can jump on the phone with and can help me through like a deal structure or whatever the case may be. And then, and then I would say I spent quite a bit of time in business school, um, taking finance courses. Um, and even though I was, you know, going into marketing, I felt like just having a cross discipline sort of education. And, and I just found finance classes interesting. So um, I, I definitely feel like I got some reps like doing some modeling in Excel that I otherwise would not have been able to. Um, I mean, it's all the kind of stuff that, you know, if you're savvy, you can like, you know, find these courses online and like figure out how to do LBO modeling and all that kind of stuff um, in Excel. But and my model was very rudimentary. But um, but yeah, I would say that the combination of like the focus on taking a lot of finance courses in conjunction with um, just the knowledge from the class and the network of like how to put a deal together and close it. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty big, big help. But again, I don't think like, I don't think out of reach for someone without access to that. Um, but I mean, Admittedly, I, I would say it's, you know, it's probably more work um, to, yeah. to do the research and talk to the people. But in general, like people are super willing to connect um, uh, with, you know, people who are interested in pursuing search and former searchers. And I've never encountered like a situation where someone reached out and wanted to connect and like, it was discovered that they didn't go to like a fancy business school. So therefore like, I'm not going to talk to them or help them. Um, I, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think that's a thing, but, um, but, you know, definitely it doesn't hurt to, to know a lot of people who have, you know, done search and um, have put a lot of deals together. Definitely. Yeah. It helps. Great. I want to ask in your article, you talk about some of the mistakes you made. Um, let's dwell on those. So among them was the working capital retrade. So at the end, at the toward closing, what happened? Yeah. So I just, I think fundamentally, like what happened was I just didn't account for working capital early enough in the uh, deal. Um, so I ended up 
in a position where I needed to bring more to the table than I would have anticipated. Um, but I didn't account. I mean, it was one of those like shame on shame on me type of scenarios because it was like, and I guess the downside of like my sort of willingness to fire off an LOI um, was like, I didn't, um, I just didn't account for uh, working capital adjustments early enough on. And by the time it became something that was a point that I wanted to contend, it was just like, at that point, going to start to erode um, some of the uh, other things that that made the deal so smooth around like just relationship with seller and trust yeah. um, that I just felt like, yeah, I mean, I could try to push here, but like, it's, it's a huge risk. Cause you know, I may not get what I'm driving at and then, but even more importantly, even if I do like, is it going to erode the, it's likely going to erode the sort of like trust and commitment um, that that has been something the deal has had going for it so well throughout the process. So, um, so uh, yeah, I think, you know, if I were to do another deal, um, I would definitely be super upfront about working capital and the adjustments I expect. And, and the, the premise to your answer there was because you were so willing to send LOIs, that was actually, that was also a theme of your article. Elaborate on that. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And it's not like, like I said, I kind of found one that I really liked early on. So it's not like I was sending LOIs to every company every other week type of thing, but I was quick on the trigger. Um, uh, I was, I, and again, I've heard kind of some guests on your podcast who've, who've had a lot of success with this approach of just like, and I think it's important in search. I think it's important in life. It's just like, look, like, make a decision and like, and, and go with it. And like, I think that there's a lot of times too, that, um, searchers are, you know, deep into their model or deep into diligence. And they're looking for some piece of information about the business that they can find in diligence or in their financial model that is going to tell them whether or not it's a good idea to submit an offer or close a deal. And that mm -hmm. information, like you are looking in the wrong place. Like it's not there. It's not in the model. It's not in the diligence of the business. Like it's ultimately like it's way, it's way down in the gut. And like, you gotta like know whether or not it's there. And if it is like, in my opinion, there's a huge benefit to action and like move and, and don't wait um, and, uh, and just take action uh, and then go from there. Um, and, and the other thing is, I think, you know, it then becomes easier to kind of like move on um, because you kind of, you know, you see something, you spend the time with it, um, but you don't like overanalyze it. You just kind of go with, with, with what you're thinking on it and then um, let it fly. And uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, then move on. Elliot Holland of Guardian Due Diligence uh, likes to say, quote, send the damn LOI. <laughs> <laughs> Just bias toward action. Um, and an LOI is not uh, a purchase agreement. Yeah. So it's not yeah. And I think that's something I've mentioned too, like before. It's like you're not, it's not binding. Like you're not signing an APA. Um, so 
you know, yeah, just an LOI. Yeah, one of the other mistakes that you called out, I'm not sure this is in your article, is from our pre-call, but um, the, during the transition and your uh, the hours that you were in the business and how you were negotiating time at home. So talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, so the baby. Um, uh, baby came. Uh, baby came. <laughs> she arrived. Um, and uh, it's funny, when I, when I started looking for, um, when I started this, this whole journey, obviously talked to my wife about it. And um, she was, you know, and still is, I think, somewhat hesitant, but ultimately, like, supportive and all in, um, which, again, I think, you know, I could do a whole another podcast about, you know, the importance of partnership with your spouse and search and um, all that kind of stuff, too. But um, but she she did press me on my commitment to um, to be at home with our daughter until we could sort out our childcare situation, um, which was, um, further out than the close of the, what ended up being the close to the business. But at the time I had just started like looking at small businesses and I was like, that's an easy commitment. It's going to take me forever to like find something like, yeah, yeah. of course, you know, I'll, I'll do, you know, my, my part at home. And, and, uh, and I did, um, but I, um, it was a commitment that I made. I ultimately felt like my commitment to my wife, um, won the day, but there was a period of transition where I owned the business. Um, but I wasn't there operating full time. Um, and so I would be as involved as I could. Um, but, um, that I, this seller was still operating, um, which again, seller relationship was like everything, um, for me in my situation. Um, but, uh, but I do think it created questions, um, among the team of what my strategy was, like what my, what my level of, of commitment to the business was, um, and fair or not, um, that, is a, if it's a perception people have, it's valid. Um, and like, I think one of the things that I'm learning very quickly is, um, is that like, e there's no way to externalize any of the consequences of your decisions when you own a small business. Like, and if you are not comfortable living in a world where your decisions can be interpreted and seven different ways and all those interpretations are valid and they can be thrown back in your face. Not that this happened to me at all. I think it was more of just like a perception thing and just a challenge that I, I probably made a, you know, potentially made a bigger deal out of it than people had. But, um, I don't want to, you know, put, put words and thoughts in anyone's mind, but, but I think it, it brings up this broader point of like, if you're not comfortable with your actions being interpreted and, you know, 17 different ways and being, you know, used against you sounds so nefarious, but used for what the interpretation of those actions is then like, you know, you're probably like in the wrong seat. Um, because ultimately like you're accountable for what happens in your business. Um, 
fair or not. Um, and so yeah. I, I think I netted out on a good footing with everyone and with the decision that I made. And ultimately like it was purely like a, uh, a, a decision driven by commitment to my wife and daughter above all else, um, above any expansion of EBITDA or multiple arbitrage. Like that's just like, I, I just came to that conclusion and I said, let the chips kind of fall where they may from there. And I'll, you know, deal with the consequences if, you know, they are, um, various and, and negative. Um, but, Ultimately, I think it was more than anything, it, it, what I'm finding and hope to continue to be the case is that, you know, it's uh, it's a big, you know, it's a big change for people and, and people are, you know, this isn't a new insight um, in the search world. And I think the transition overall was handled well, um, but, you know, it's it's big and scary and it's um, it's a lot. And again, kind of goes into oof, two thoughts that I hold in my head today too about like making changes it's like do you want to make changes or like don't rock the boat like some things you have to change um and but knowing that like just you being there and not making any changes to the business like is a change so like you gotta right. <laughs> i don't know you know it's a lot of <laughs> a lot of thinking um but um but yeah i think you know um would i have been better served to just operate um from day one Maybe, um, but uh, but I ultimately made the decision I made, and I'm moving forward. And I, again, I, I don't think that you know there's been any material negative impact. Just probably more trust that I need to continue to earn, and that's that's mm -hmm. going to happen over a long long period of time. So, Connor, last question. So you talk to us about the when you got to close and and started feeling cold feet for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, just because it's probably a universal feeling, but it's actually not one that yeah. I have asked about very much, if at all. Yeah. I had to check in with some people in the search community, uh, of whether or not the anxiety I was feeling was normal. And everyone assured me that it was totally normal <laughs> and that it would be weird if I wasn't anxious. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think once week of close arrived and, you know, I came to the realization, like I said, throughout this whole process has been like me taking action, listening to recommendations, taking action, t tweaking and iterating the process from there and kind of checking in with people and then being like, here, go do these four things. And, uh, and then I would go do those four things. And then they'd be like, now go do this. And I would go do that. And, uh, and then it's like, okay, like the week of it's like, this is happening. Like, and then it kind of just like hit me like a ton of bricks. I remember like I was actually had just finished a haircut and I like started feel like I, I remember this feeling so vividly. Like I just, it, when it started happening, like I just started feeling so anxious and I was like, what's going on? Like, you know, I've, I haven't felt this anxious in, in quite a while. Um, and I realized it was just like my body's response to like this impending, like massive, change um mm -hmm. but i think from between like having the baby a few months prior or like all the life changes that we're like thinking through and my wife and i starting a family like it was just like i was taken aback by how much it affected me because those other ones were yeah they were like a big deal but 
I don't remember the visceral, like, physical reaction that I had the way that I do with, with the closing. Um, but I think it was just the, the stakes um, of the decision I was making and that, like, okay, this is it. This is it. Like, this is – I'm putting it all on the line. Um, and I think, you know, I'm confident this is the right thing to do, but it's still, like, hard – to do um like i remember feeling that week like a few times like man i just want to like curl in a ball and like (laughs) disappear for like the next week or so and then come back and you know just go back to my comfortable life connor you had a a fetal position moment before you even closed yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly (laughs) but it was one of those again like sort of going back to the theme of like growth and a muscle like it was one of those where i was like this is hesitation that is related to the momentous life change and all the, you know, variables that it entails. It's not, uh, it's not a feeling of like, I'm doing the wrong thing. So it was more of just like stand in and, um, stand up and like, you know, face the, face the fear and go through with it. And, and then after I went through with it, it was like, well, I can't dwell on it now. It's, it's over. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, so now here we are. And, you know, as an operator too, like, I think one of the things that I've noticed already is just how engaged I am with the work. Um, and I, um, I think a lot of that has to do with the stakes. Um, the stakes are high and it feels that way. Um, and, uh, and that makes it exciting. So. (laughs) Great note to end on Connor. If people want to reach out to you, how do you prefer they do that? Yeah. So you can, um, you can find me on Twitter at Connor Para, um, or you can um, just hit me up on LinkedIn, um, and you can email me at Connor at theprintauthority.com. Connor, thank you very much for uh, sharing all this with us. Congratulations on the two enormous changes in your life, uh, baby number one and baby number two. <laughs> and uh, and we'll, we'll have to see uh, how uh, baby number two, the print authority, has gone. Uh, a year or so from now. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Will. <laughs>